Your listenership is so important to us, and we hope you're enjoying the show. If you are able to leave a review on Apple Podcasts, it would be enormously helpful in allowing us to reach more people and help them get a good night's sleep. So does following us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any other podcast player that you use. Thank you so much for your time and support. Good evening, and welcome to The Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. It is wonderful to have you here with me. This evening, we're returning to Anne of Avonlea. But before that, let's take a moment to let go of the day. Get comfy where you are. Feel rooted and safe. Close your eyes and take a deep breath in through your nose for one, two, three, four, and out through your mouth for one, two, three, four. Continue breathing at this slow pace, and as you inhale, imagine you are breathing in calmness and strength. As you exhale, imagine you are breathing out stress and worry. Feel your anxiety slip away with each exhale. And if your mind drifts to thoughts of anxiety, acknowledge them and bring your attention back to your breath. You are strong, and this too shall pass. Notice how calm you feel as I recap on our last episode. Previously, Anne was writing to her friend Stella about all the unusual things her pupils have said. Some were oddly unimaginative, others cheeky and Paul Irving, as predicted, had shown he was special beyond belief. But one day, Anne woke up after a night suffering with toothache and was in a terrible mood. She went to school feeling uncharacteristically irritable. She snapped at her pupils and created a tension in the classroom that nobody had felt before. When Joe Sloan passed a bundle to St. Clair Donald, Anne thought it was cake and told Joseph to throw it into the fire. He did it regretfully, and the fireplace erupted with crackles and fizzes as fireworks flew out of it and ricocheted all around the room. They had been fireworks purchased by Mr. Sloan for a Donald birthday celebration, not cake after all. 
after dinner break, Anthony Pye put a mouse in Anne's desk, which made her scream as it hopped out. Anne took very unkindly to this, and against all her better judgment, she took her pointer to Anthony Pye's backside. Dismayed with herself, she wept all evening. The next day, Mrs. Lynde reported Anthony Pye saying, perhaps Miss Shirley wasn't so bad after all for a girl. Tonight, we pick up with Anne, preparing for her birthday picnic. So lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of Anne of Avonlea. Chapter 8 A Golden Picnic Anne, on her way to Orchard Slope, met Diana, bound for Green Gables, just where the mossy old log bridge spanned the brook below the haunted wood, and they sat down by the margin of the dryad's bubble, where tiny ferns were unrolling like curly-headed green pixie folk wakening up from a nap. I was just on my way over to invite you to help me celebrate my birthday on Saturday, said Anne. Your birthday? But your birthday was in March. That wasn't my fault, laughed Anne. If my parents had consulted me, it would never have happened then. I should have chosen to be born in spring, of course, but it must be delightful to come into the world with the mayflowers and violets. You would always feel that you were their foster sister. But since I didn't, the next best thing is to celebrate my birthday in the spring. Priscilla is coming over Saturday, when Jane will be home. We'll all four start off to the woods and spend a golden day making the acquaintance of the spring. We none of us really know her yet, but we'll meet her back there as we never can anywhere else. I want to explore those fields and lonely places anyhow. I have a conviction that there are scores of beautiful nooks there that have never really been seen, although they may have been looked at. We'll make friends with the wind and the sky and sun, and bring home the spring in our hearts. Sounds awfully nice, said Diana, with some inward distrust of Anne's magic of words. But won't it be very damp in some places yet? Oh, we'll wear rubber boots, was Anne's concession to practicalities. And I want you to come early Saturday morning and help me prepare lunch. Going to have the daintiest things possible. Things that will match the spring, you understand. Little jelly tarts and lady fingers and drop cookies frosted with pink and yellow icing and buttercup cake. And we must have sandwiches too, though they're not very poetical. Saturday proved an ideal day for a picnic. A day of breeze and blue, warm, sunny, with a little rollicking wind blowing across meadow and orchard. 
over every sunlit upland and field was a delicate, flower-starred green. Mr. Harrison, harrowing at the back of his farm and feeling some of the spring witch work, even in his sober, middle-aged blood, saw four girls, basket-laden, tripping across the end of his field where it joined a fringing woodland of birch and fir. Their blithe voices and laughter echoed down to him. So easy to be happy on a day like this, isn't it? Anne was saying with true Annish philosophy. Let's try to make this a really golden day, girls. A day to which we can always look back with delight. We're to seek for beauty and refuse to see anything else. Begone, dull care. Jane, you are thinking of something that went wrong in school yesterday. How do you know? Gasped Jane, amazed. Oh, I know the expression. I felt it often enough on my own face. But put it out of your mind, there's a dear. It will keep till Monday. Or if it doesn't, so much the better. Oh, girls, girls, see that patch of violets. There's something from memory's picture gallery. When I'm 80 years old, if I ever am, I shall shut my eyes and see those violets just as I see them now. That's the first good gift our day has given us. If a kiss could be seen, I think it would look like a violet, said Priscilla. Anne glowed. So glad you spoke that thought, Priscilla, instead of just thinking it and keeping it to yourself. This world would be a much more interesting place, though it is very interesting anyhow, if people spoke out their real thoughts. It would be too hot to hold some folks quoted Jane sagely. Suppose it might be. That would be their own faults for thinking nasty things. Anyhow, we can tell all our thoughts today because we are going to have nothing but beautiful thoughts. Everybody can say just what comes into their head. That is conversation. Here's a little path I never saw before. Huh? Let's explore it. The path was a winding one, so narrow that the girls walked in single file, and even then the fir boughs brushed their faces. Under the firs were velvety cushions of moss, and further on, where the trees were smaller and fewer, the ground was rich in a variety of green, growing things. What a lot of elephants is, exclaimed Diana. I'm going to pick a big bunch. They're so pretty. How did such graceful feathery things ever come to have such a dreadful name? Asked Priscilla. Because the person who first named them either had no imagination at all or else far too much, said Anne. Oh, girls, look at that. That 
was a shallow woodland pool in the centre of a little open glade where the path ended. Later on in the season it would be dried up and its place filled with rank growth of firs. But now there's a glimmering, placid sheet, round as a saucer and clear as a crystal. A ring of slender young birches encircled it and little ferns fringed its margin. How sweet, said Jane. Let us dance around it like wood nymphs, said Anne, dropping her basket and extending her hands. But the dance was not a success, for the ground was boggy and Jane's rubbers came off. You can't be a wood nymph if you have to wear rubbers, was her decision. Well, we must name this place before we leave it, said Anne, yielding to the indisputable logic of fact. Everybody suggest a name, and we'll draw lots. Diana? Birchpool, suggested Diana promptly. Crystal Lake, said Jane. Anne, standing behind them, implored Priscilla with her eyes not to perpetrate another such name, and Priscilla rose to the occasion with Glimmer Glass. Anne's selection was The Fairy's Mirror. The names were written on strips of birch bark with a pencil schoolmarm Jane produced from her pocket and placed in Anne's hat. Then Priscilla shut her eyes and drew one. Crystal Lake, read Jane triumphantly. Crystal Lake it was, and if Anne thought that chance had played the pool by a shabby trick, she did not say so. Pushing through the undergrowth beyond, the girls came out to the young green seclusion of Mr. Silas Sloane's back pasture. Across it, they found the entrance to a lane, striking up through the woods, and voted to explore it also. It rewarded their quest with a succession of pretty surprises. First, skirting Mr. Sloane's pasture, came an archway of wild cherry trees, all in bloom. The girls swung their hats on their arms and wreathed their hair with the creamy, fluffy blossoms. Then the lane turned at right angles and plunged into a spruce wood so thick and dark that they walked in a gloom as of twilight, with not a glimpse of sky or sunlight to be seen. This is where the bad wood elves dwell, whispered Anne. They are impish and malicious, but they can't harm us because they're not allowed to do evil in the spring. There was one peeping at us around that old, twisted fir. And didn't you see a group of them on that big, freckly toadstool we just passed? The good fairies always dwell in the sunshiny places. I wish there really were fairies, said Jane. 
Wouldn't it be nice to have three wishes granted you? Or even only one? What would you wish for, girls, if you could have a wish granted? I'd wish to be rich and beautiful and clever. I'd wish to be tall and slender, said Diana. I would wish to be famous, said Priscilla. Anne thought of her hair and then dismissed the thought as unworthy. I'd wish it might be spring all the time and in everybody's heart and all our lives, she said. But that, said Priscilla, would just be wishing this world were like heaven. Only like a part of heaven. In the other parts there would be summer and autumn. Yes, and a bit of winter too. I think I want glittering snowy fields and white frosts in heaven sometimes. Don't you, Jane? I... I don't know, said Jane uncomfortably. Jane was a good girl, a member of the church, who tried conscientiously to live up to her profession and believed everything she had been taught. But she never thought about heaven any more than she could help, for all that. Minnie May asked me the other day if we would wear our best dresses every day in heaven, laughed Diana. And didn't you tell her we would? asked Anne. Mercy, no. I told her we wouldn't be thinking of dresses at all there. Oh, I think we will. A little, said Anne in earnest. There'll be plenty of time in all eternity for it, without rejecting more important things. I believe we'll all wear beautiful dresses. Well, I suppose raiment would be a more suitable way of speaking. I shall want to wear pink for a few centuries at first. It would take me that long to get tired of it, I feel sure. I do love pink so. I can never wear it in this world. Past the spruces, the lane dipped down into a sunny little open where a log bridge spanned a brook. And then came the glory of a sunlit beechwood where the air was like transparent golden wine and the leaves fresh and green and the wood floor a mosaic of tremulous sunshine. Then more wild cherries and a little valley of lissom firs and then a hill so steep that the girls lost their breath climbing it. But when they reached the top, and came out into the open. The prettiest surprise of all awaited them. Beyond were the back fields of the farms that ran out to the upper Carmody Road. Just before them, hemmed in by beeches and firs that opened to the south, was a little corner, and in it, a garden or what had once been a garden. A tumble-down stone dyke, overgrown with mosses and grass, surrounded it. Along the eastern side ran a row of garden cherry trees, 
white as a snowdrift. There were traces of old paths still, and a double line of rose bushes through the middle. But all the rest of the space was a sheet of yellow and white narcissi in their airiest, most lavish, wind-swayed bloom above the lush green grasses. Oh, how perfectly lovely, three of the girls said. Anne only gazed in eloquent silence. How in the world does it happen that there ever was a garden back here? said Priscilla in amazement. It must be Hester Gray's garden, said Diana. I've heard Mother speak of it, but I never saw it before, and I wouldn't have supposed that it could be in existence still. You've heard the story, Anne. No, but the name seems familiar to me. Oh, you've seen it in the graveyard. She's buried down there in the poplar corner. You know the little brown stone with the opening gates carved on it and sacred to the memory of Hester Gray, aged 22. Jordan Gray is buried right beside her, but there's no stone to him. It's a wonder Marilla never told you about it, Anne. To be sure, it happened 30 years ago, and everybody has forgotten. Well, there's a story, we must have it, said Anne. Let's sit right down here among the Narcissi, and Diana will tell it. My girls, there are hundreds of them. They've spread over everything. It looks as if the garden were carpeted with moonshine and sunshine combined. This is a discovery worth making. To think I've lived within a mile of this place for six years, I've never seen it before. Now, Diana. Long ago, began Diana, this farm belonged to the old Mr. David Gray. He didn't live on it. He lived where Silas Sloan lives now. He had one son, Jordan and he went up to Boston one winter to work. And while he was there, he fell in love with a girl named Hester Murray. She was working in a store, and she hated it. She'd been brought up in the country, and she always wanted to get back. When Jordan asked her to marry him, she said she would if he'd take her away to some quiet spot where she'd see nothing but fields and trees. So he brought her to Avonlea. Mrs. Lynde said he was taking a fearful risk in marrying a Yankee, and it's certain that Hester was very delicate and a very poor housekeeper. But Mother said she was very pretty and sweet, and Jordan just worshipped the ground she walked on. While Mr. Gray gave Jordan this farm, and he built a little house back here, and Jordan and Hester lived in it for four years. She never went out much, and hardly anybody went to see her, except Mother and Mrs. Lynde. Jordan made her this garden. She was crazy about it, spent most of her time in it. She wasn't much of a housekeeper. She had a knack with flowers. And then she got sick. 
mother says she thinks she was in consumption before she ever came here. She never really laid up, just grew weaker and weaker all the time. Jordan wouldn't have anybody to wait on her. He did it all himself, and mother says he was as tender and gentle as a woman. Every day he'd wrap her in a shawl and carry her out to the garden, and she'd lie there on a bench, quite happy. They say she used to make Jordan kneel down by her every night and morning to pray with her that she might die out in the garden when the time came, and her prayer was answered. One day, Jordan carried her out to the bench, and then he picked all the roses that were out and heaped them over her. She just smiled up at him and closed her eyes, and that, concluded Diana softly, was the end. Oh, what a dear story, sighed Anne, wiping away her tears. What became of Jordan? asked Priscilla. He sold the farm after Hester died and went back to Boston. Mr. Jabez Sloan bought the farm and hauled the little house out to the road. Jordan died about ten years after, and he was brought home and buried beside Hester. I can't understand how she could have wanted to live back here, away from everything, said Jane. Oh, I can easily understand that, said Anne thoughtfully. I wouldn't want it myself for a steady thing because although I love the fields and woods, I love people too. But I can understand it in Hester. She was tired to death of the noise of the big city, the crowds of people always coming and going and caring nothing for her. She just wanted to escape from it all to some still, green, friendly place where she could rest. She got just what she wanted, which is something very few people do, I believe. She had four beautiful years before she died. Four years of perfect happiness. So I think she was to be envied more than pitied, and then to shut your eyes and fall asleep among roses with one you loved best on earth, smiling down at you. Ah. I think it was beautiful. She set out those cherry trees over there, said Diana. She told Mother she'd never lived to eat the fruit. She wanted to think of something that she had planted that would go on living, helping to make the world beautiful after she was dead. So glad we came this way, said Anne, the shining guide. This is my adopted birthday, you know. In this garden and its story is the birthday gift it has given me. Did your mother ever tell you what Hester Gray looked like, Diana? No, only that she was pretty. I'm rather glad of that, because I can imagine what she looked like without being hampered by facts. I think she was very slight and small, but soft curling dark hair big sweet timid brown eyes the little 
wistful, pale face. The girls left their baskets in Hester's garden and spent the rest of the afternoon rambling in the woods and fields surrounding it, discovering many pretty nooks and lanes. When they got hungry, they had lunch in the prettiest spot of all, on the steep bank of a gurgling brook where white birches shot up out of long, feathery grasses. The girls sat down by the roots and did full justice to Anne's dainties, even the unpoetical sandwiches being greatly appreciated by hearty, unspoiled appetites, sharpened by all the fresh air and exercise they had enjoyed. Anne had brought glasses and lemonade for her guests, but for her own part, drank cold brook water from a cup fashioned out of birch bark. The cup leaked, and the water tasted of earth, as brook water is apt to do in spring. But Anne thought it more appropriate to the occasion than lemonade. Look, do you see that poem? She said, suddenly pointing. Where? Jane and Diana stared, as if expecting to see runic rhymes on the birch trees. There, down in the brook, that old, green, mossy log, with the water flowing over it in those smooth ripples that look as if they've been combed. That shingle shaft of sunshine falling right athwart it, far down into the pool. Oh, it's the most beautiful poem I ever saw. I should rather call it a picture, said Jane. A poem is lines and verses. Oh, dear me, no. Anne shook her head with its fluffy, wild, cherry coronal positively. The lines and verses are only outward garments of the poem and are no more really it than your flounces and ruffles are you, Jane. The real poem is the soul within them, and that beautiful bit is the soul of an unwritten poem. It's not every day one sees a soul, even of a poem. I wonder what a soul, a person's soul, would look like, said Priscilla dreamily. Like that, I should think, answered Anne, pointing to a radiance of sifted sunlight streaming through a birch tree. Only with shape and features, of course. I like to fancy souls as being made of light, and some are all shot through with rosy stains and quivers. Some have a soft glitter, like moonlight on the sea, and some are pale and transparent, like mist at dawn. I read somewhere once that souls were like flowers, said Priscilla. Then your soul is a golden narcissus, said Anne, and Diana's is like a red, red rose. Jane's is an apple blossom, pink and wholesome and sweet. And your own is a white violet with purple streaks in its heart. 
finished Priscilla. Jane whispered to Diana that she really could not understand what they were talking about. Could she? The girls went home by the light of a calm, golden sunset. Their baskets, filled with narcissus blossoms from Hester's garden, some of which Anne carried to the cemetery next day and laid upon Hester's grave. Minstrel robins were whistling in the firs, and the frogs were singing in the marshes. All the basins among the hills were brimmed with topaz and emerald light. Well, we have had a lovely time after all, said Diana, as if she hardly expected to have it when she set out. It has been a really, truly golden day, said Priscilla. I'm really awful fond of the woods myself, said Jane. Anne said nothing. She was looking afar into the western sky and thinking of little Hester Gray. Chapter 14 A Danger Averted Anne, walking home from the post office one Friday evening, was joined by Mrs. Lynn who was as usual, cumbered with all the cares of church and state. I've just been down to Timothy Cotton's to see if I could get Alice Louise to help me for a few days, she said. I had her last week, for though she's too slow to stop quick, she's better than nobody. But she's sick and can't come. Timothy's sitting there too, coughing and complaining, He's been dying for ten years, and he'll go on dying for ten years more. That kind can't even die and have done with it. They can't stick to anything, even to being sick, long enough to finish it. They're a terrible, shiftless family, and what is to become of them, I don't know. But perhaps Providence does. Mrs. Lynde sighed as if she rather doubted the extent of providential knowledge on the subject. Marilla was in doubt about her eyes again Tuesday, wasn't she? What did the specialist think of them? She continued. He was much pleased, said Anne brightly. He says there is a great improvement in them, and he thinks that the danger of her losing her sight completely is past, but says she'll never be able to read much or do any of the handwork again. How are your preparations for your bazaar coming on? The Ladies' Aid Society was preparing for a fair and supper, and Mrs. Lynde was the head and front of the enterprise. Pretty well. Oh, and that reminds me. Mrs. Allen thinks it would be nice to fix up a booth like an old-time kitchen and serve a supper of baked beans, doughnuts, pie, and so on. We're collecting old-fashioned fixings everywhere. Mrs. Simon Fletcher is going to lend us her mother's braided rugs, and Mrs. Levi Bolter some old chairs, and Aunt Mary Shaw will lend us her cupboard with the glass doors. I suppose Marilla will let us have her brass candlesticks, and we'll want all the old dishes we can get. Mrs. Allen is especially set on having a real blue willowware platter if we can find one, 
but nobody seems to have one. Do you know where we could get one? Uh, Miss Josephine Barry has one. I'll write her and ask if she'll lend it for the occasion, said Anne. Well, I wish you would. I guess we'll have the supper in about a fortnight's time. Uncle Abe Andrews is prophesizing rain and storms for about that time. It's a pretty sure sign we'll have fine weather. She said Uncle Abe, maybe mentioned, was at least like other prophets in that he had small honor in his own country. He was, in fact, considered in the light of a standing joke, for few of his weather predictions were ever fulfilled. Mr. Alicia Wright, who labored under the impression that he was a local wit, used to say that nobody in Avonlea ever thought of looking in the Charlottetown dailies for weather probabilities. No, they just asked Uncle Abe what it was going to be tomorrow and expected the opposite. Nothing daunted, Uncle Abe kept on prophesying. We want to have the fair over before the election comes off, continued Mrs. Lynn, for the candidates will be sure to come and spend lots of money. The Tories are bribing right and left, so they might as well be given a chance to spend their money honestly for once. Anne was a red-hot conservative, out of loyalty to Matthew's memory, but she said nothing. She knew better than to get Mrs. Lynn started on politics. She had a letter from Marilla, postmarked from a town in British Columbia. It's probably from the children's uncle, she said excitedly when she got home. Oh, Marilla, I wonder what he says about them. The best plan might be to open it and see, said Marilla curtly. A close observer might have thought that she was excited too, but she would rather have died than show it. Anne tore open the letter and glanced over the somewhat untidy and poorly written contents. He says he can't take the children this spring. He's been sick most of the winter, and his wedding is put off. He wants to know if we can keep them till the fall, and he'll try to take them then. We will, of course, won't we, Marilla? I don't see that there is anything else for us to do said Marilla rather grimly, although she felt a secret relief. Anyhow, they're not so much trouble as they were, or else we've got used to them. Davy has improved a great deal. His manners are certainly much better, said Anne cautiously, as if she were not prepared to say much for his morals. Anne had come home from school the previous evening to find Marilla away at an aid meeting, Dora asleep on the kitchen sofa, and Davy in the sitting room closet, blissfully absorbing the contents of a jar of Marilla's famous yellow plum preserves. Company jam, Davy called it, which he had been forbidden to touch. He looked very guilty when Anne pounced on him and whisked him out of the closet. Oh, Davy Keith! Don't you know that it is very wrong of you to be eating that jam when you were told never to meddle with anything in that closet? Yes, I knew it was wrong, admitted Davy uncomfortably. But plum jam is awful nice, Anne. I just peeped in 
It looked so good, I thought I'd just take a weeny taste. I stuck my finger in and groaned and licked it clean. And it was so much gooder than I ever thought. I got a spoon and just sailed in. Anne gave him such a serious lecture on the sin of stealing plum jam that Davy became conscience-stricken and promised with repentant kisses never to do it again. Anyhow, there'll be plenty of jam in heaven, that's one comfort, he said complacently. Anne nipped a smile in the bud. Perhaps there will, if we want it said she. But what makes you think so? Why, it's in the catechism, said Davy. Um, no, there is nothing like that in the catechism, Davy. But I tell you there is, persisted Davy. It was in that question Marilla taught me last Sunday. Why should we love God? It says, because he makes, preserves, and redeems us. Preserves is just a holy way of saying jam. I must get a drink of water, said Anne hastily. When she came back, it cost her some time and trouble to explain to Davy that a certain comma in the said catechism question made a great deal of difference in the meaning. Well, I thought it was too good to be true, he said at last with a sigh of disappointed conviction. Besides, I don't see when he'd find the time to make jam if it's one endless Sabbath day, as the hymn says. I don't believe I want to go to heaven. Won't there be any Saturdays in heaven, Anne? Yes, Saturdays, and every other kind of beautiful days. And every day in heaven will be more beautiful than the one before it, Davy assured Anne, who was rather glad that Marilla was not by to be shocked. Marilla, it is needless to say, was bringing the twins up in the good old ways of theology and discouraged all fanciful speculations thereupon. Davy and Dora were taught a hymn, a catechism question, and two Bible verses every Sunday. Dora learned meekly and recited like a little machine, with perhaps as much understanding or interest as if she were one. Davy, on the contrary, had a lively curiosity and frequently asked questions which made Marilla tremble for his fate. Chester Sloane says we'll do nothing all the time in heaven but walk around in white dresses and play on harps. And then, he says, he hopes he won't have to go till he's an old man, because maybe he'll like it better then. And, he thinks, it will be horrid to wear dresses, and I think so too. Why can't men angels wear trousers, Anne? Chester Sloane is interested in those things, because they're going to make a minister of him. He's got to be a minister, because his grandmother left the money to send him to college he can't have it unless he's a minister. She thought a minister was such a respectable thing to have in a family. Chester says he doesn't mind much. 
though he'd rather be a blacksmith. He's bound to have all the fun he can before he has to be a minister, because he doesn't expect to have much afterwards. I ain't going to be a minister. I'm going to be a storekeeper, like Mr. Blair. Keep heaps of candy and bananas. I'd rather like going to your kind of a heaven if they let me play a mouth organ instead of a harp. Do you suppose they would? Yes, I think they would, if you wanted it, was all Anne could trust herself to say. <laughs> 